Dennis. Kevin. We were uh, talking about how awkward both of our setups are this week. Yeah. Actually, yours is awkward. Mine actually is more professional this week. All my stuff is properly set up on a desk. And I know, but that's are... awkward for you. It is awkward for me because it's there's no, no, not... There's no cat nibbling through the XLR <laughs> cable on your microphone. Or... Yes, and you are taking this like uh, John and Yoko Ono style from bed. Yes, yeah. I, we're, we are in an Airbnb um, for a couple of weeks. And my wife is on a conference call in the other room. So there's not a lot of room in this bedroom, but I had some uh, (laughs) enough gear to kind of make something uh, work. So I I think it'll be okay, but I'll definitely seek further improvement. Maybe I'll put our first uh, picture uh, out there on the link on the feed to a picture so people can understand the kind of. (laughs) <laughs> the kind of great lengths I go to to uh, to record this wonderful podcast for everyone. Well, I can't wait to see the picture too. I thought I was going <laughs> to get a sneak preview before. But... I, I've I've definitely toned down the amount of information I'm giving you about pretty much everything. Right? Like <laughs> you don't know what this week's secret is. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that we listen to the same throwback episode, um, I, but it's all good, all good. Yeah, I'm not sure, no, but I definitely, okay, well, does Bridal have two throwback episodes? No, only okay, one. Then I, then I definitely listen to the right one. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get into that, but first, uh, how about a secret? I would love to hear a secret. Okay, I have... At this point in time, I have two ways I'm going to phrase this, and it'll just depend how brave we are, uh, which one we go with. So I'm going to go bold first. Okay. okay. Are you ready for mm-hmm. my bold secret? Dennis, yep. I have a bold secret. Ooh, Kev, tell Mainframe me. security sucks. Okay. Okay. Now, the politically correct version. Okay. Main ha- <laughs> mainframes are not inherently secure. Have, do you know of this uh this phenomenon that's out there that uh that mainframes are like secure in inherently secure have you ever heard somebody argue that i know that you don't have the same necessarily background in enterprises that might have mainframes as much and you might not be but i i just thought i would if not i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you this will be a little bit more interactive i'm gonna share with you some some premise. Uh, <laughs> I may have to convince you that this is a thing first, and I'm prepared to do that. But wh- okay, what's I your think background? I'm definitely not. I'm going to need you to educate me on this because yes, I have not had very much overlap. With okay, mainframes this is my career. this is a phenomenon I've come across a couple of times in in my career, in which an enterprise considers a mainframe meaning a big honking server probably running a mainframe operating system like ZOS or you know some some other mainframe um, specific and mainframe you know architectures largely are uh, they're designed to support you know thousands of multiple users concurrently running a wide array of applications so, it's a much different security architecture and we'll get into this, but I want you to, uh, do you have a web browser in front of you? Is your, is your new office set up uh, equipped with a personal computer? 
Uh, I have a computer in front of me. Yes. Okay. So. I want you to Google are mainframes secure. Okay. Good. Done. And then, like the first real hit you get is an article about from Precisely. It's yep. like there's okay. Why don't you summarize the the title in that in that uh, or, or summarize this article as as your just your first reaction to what it's saying. Yeah, well, it is definitely telling me that mainframes are secure by default, and then they are saying parenthetically that they can even share advice on how to make them more secure. Okay, and if you get maybe a little bit deeper into that, does okay. it tell you why they think they're they're secure by default? Uh, well, there is a section here called "Why Mainframes Are Inherently Secure," uh-huh. and it is saying. I, I, they're I, more I secure so because cyber, secrimi- cyber criminals find them to be less lucrative targets. Okay, well, what's your immediate reaction to that? <laughs> that is not any way to judge the security or something like <laughs> at all. Okay. Okay, so there's this, uh, just to expand on that, right? There's this idea that because criminal or, you know, people targeting these platforms. One, I mean, the lucrative nature of it. I mean, where there are mainframes, I assure you, those are some of the most critical data assets. Nobody is going to buy, you know, these million dollar uh, and maintain them for decades upon decades in certain cases and incrementally upgrade all this time to store, manage, process unimportant data, (laughs) right? Like it's just not going to happen. And the second thing is, is what does it sound like to you um, as we get into, I, I mean, part of this, this other nature of this is this like security through obscurity thing, right? Where it, and you know, if, if, if at ever this was a valid argument, it's no longer valid because you can buy you can buy instances of these computers now on eBay as a, and there's been a lot of people and I'm going to, I've got a little bit of shout outs, you know, as I get into my argument as to why I don't even think that they're substantively secure operating systems at this point, Um, because there's a lot of research out there, right? These, these security researchers have bought these things and found a lot of problems with them in the real world. And, you know, it's kind of like crypto in which algorithms sometimes age out because the commodity hardware becomes available. Mm -hmm. That's, it's just powerful enough. Same thing is kind of tackled this obscurity problem. Um, If you go back into your, your, your browser there Mm -hmm. and well, let me also, just for simplicity, I'll share the link with you via our um, uh, Homingbird. It'll be there in seven days. Oh, you're going to have to, oh, you don't have uh, that on your computer. So it's you okay, I can type this in real quick. There's a, there's a IBM, in, those, in that list, there's an article from, from IBM as well. And for people, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll probably try to, maybe I'll actually start show notes. This episode will inspire me to do show notes. Okay, I'm looking at mainframe security solutions. Is this right? Uh, you know what? Sorry, my bad. Let's let's move on to uh, this this last one here. And or there, I've got two more, but for some reason that link is just kind of a generic one. 
oh, this one's going to be a pain. But here, I'll, I'll share with it. There's a, there's a, you know, the mainframe is seeing a security resurgence. This is an article I'm reading from Dark Reading. Um, a mainframe renaissance is, is here. After years of negativity and predictions about the impeding death of the mainframe, the technology is, is seeing a reward. And in this article... It, it, it kind of mentions this, you know, this, this, the, I like this article because it says, you know, I spent a majority of my career in mainframe security. And the one mistake, mistaken belief I come across consistently is that the mainframe is inherently secure. Um, so that backs up kind of what I'm saying. So this, this is a thing that's out there and it's part of the, what we just talked about with security through obscurity in terms of like people having access. But here's what, what I think is a, a larger part of the security is that, the main difference in terms of a mainframe from operating systems that we typically work with, like Linux, Unix, Mac OS, is the control mechanisms, right? So the integrated security features and the access control paradigm is different, right? I don't know, you're a CS major, did you ever, do you remember ever talking about mandatory access control systems versus discretionary access control systems? Uh, no, I do not. So, you know, in a in a operating system like Unix, a user is given a kind of a compartment, right? They have an ownership. They can create objects. They can destroy objects. They can potentially allow other people to read their own data. It's driven on these this like user paradigm of privilege, and that's discretionary access control. In a Mandatory access control systems, you have that matrixed view, right, of you have all these different data objects, all these different application handlers, and all these different end user requesters. And you have to specifically kind of create these maps that allow users to interact with applications into these specific data compartments. Everything's got that. So I th- what happens is it's very time intensive. Like if you have thousands of, of users, maybe hundreds of roles, this is not a type of thing that usually in my experience uh, we get good at, right? Of implementing least privilege. Like I get that the idea is a little bit, it has a lot more granularity in terms of mandatory access control. Like you can create, say, okay, this one user over here can access this one application and that application under that user context is only going to be able to touch certain pieces of data. That's super cool. But it requires so much granularity Mm -hmm. and configuration that mainframe security ends up meaning access control provisioning. That's 100%. (laughs) You know, if you you go and, and you see somebody is working in an enterprise on mainframe security, that's almost certainly what they're doing is they are provisioning, maintaining, and dealing with these uh, intense access object mapping in a way that it becomes, I mean, it's, it's several full-time people's jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that becomes the 100% Zoom view of security is are we maintaining? And also, it's just not something we're good at, right? So when there's a problem, what happens? Uh, when there's a problem, it, it leads to a security issue. Over access provisioning, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well, let me just get everybody who has access to this application, mm, okay. everybody, and that resolves the issues functionally, right? Oh, I'm getting an access to not design. And it leads to that bloat, right? We're not, I mean, let me, let me just, 
remind the people we never got good at making firewall rules, right? <laughs> uh, generally speaking, within an within an enterprise network, right? If you look at this in terms, and, and that's kind of a similar scope here. Mainframes are usually accessed within a, within a perimeter. And we didn't really get good at doing that with firewalls. And we're not really good at doing that with mainframes in the same way of like managing the granular least privilege of access control. Um, now, add on to that, I have a couple examples of where mandatory access control mechanisms have, have been leveraged in modern computer operating systems too. Right, so there are there are um, very good examples of this, and we also didn't get super good at them, right? Or at least we struggled for several years with them. Things like SE Linux. Um, do you have any sense of like SE Linux? And I'm I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but it is essentially a overlay for Linux to implement mandatory access control. So usually like a Unix root user has access to do pretty much whatever they want in a system. But SE Linux is going to even restrict the root user from doing something. Mm -hmm. And we have massive examples. So, you know, kind of like Red Hat and a couple, and I think SUSE Linux and a couple of these major distributions really championed and brought these things into the mainline by turning them on by default and compiling all of the operating system packages and everything like that with these SE Linux profiles, which was a huge win. But for the first eight years they were doing that, basically every system administrator on earth had to turn them off because as soon as they tried to do the server, what it needed to do for their applications, it would break. Mm. <laughs> um, we're just now getting to the point. And then on the other, it's also a fractured perspective where the other half of Linux um applications went with something called app armor which is similar purposes a little bit different of an approach but basically you're giving a more granular set of permissions via this profile to an application that's running right so it still requires a lot of knowledge over what types of things that application is going to going to do so all these things exist i don't think they i mean there are mainstream examples of usage there are very good embedded examples of people using them in a particular context to solve problems. But in terms of general computing and, you know, the, the software environment for the applications that enterprises build 99% of the time, I don't think people are building these types of detail profiles for them. Um, so again, now what is, <laughs> what are people doing and why is this, this stuff probably not going to be that relevant is, is there anything, I mean, this notion of like this, all this stuff applies to multi-user systems, right? So you have, and in fact, multi, and these are operating systems, uh, protections for, for multi-user operating systems. Mm -hmm. What's happened in the last three to five years that makes operating system mechanisms for mandatory access control like this for multi-user systems less necessary? Does the operating system in its general configuration these days have multiple users, in your opinion? Yes. Okay, what do you think those users are? I would say an admin user 
and you know the local like the actual user i'm just thinking about you know my work computer right your work computer yes for a, what's happening in the server and and you know web application space and all of these types of things what's happening to lessen the need for multi tenancy on an operating system level what's what what are we doing to applications containerizing them Ex- exactly containerization is a parallel approach to this well let me just creating operating system container mm-hmm. that one user which is the application user is going to have access to so we build these compartments and then we separate these containers from through harder infrastructure drills. And also, by the way, like a critical part of this is SE Linux is the thing that really provides the partitioning between containerizations on Linux hosts. Mm. So, you know, you have a whole bunch of these configuration managements, but in a good installation, the critical feature preventing two of these multi-tenant containers on one host from interacting with each other in an undefined way is Absolutely, SE Linux. You know, it, I mean, that's that is doing these things. So it's, but it's being used as a wall, um, so that those containers have to talk to each other through application requests, you know, APIs, whatever yeah. it is. So that's invalidating the need and moving people away. And we, the other thing that's like a better version of this in modern cloud tech stacks that's helping is we're getting uh, the object security and and you know resource control what resources can talk to each other through the cloud um you know access integrations right aws you know your these these servers can are allowed to to talk to these other objects or apis or cloud backend services right like we're we're getting that and it's a much more functional set of controls than any of this uh, mandatory access control systems mm-hmm. were before because we just have a new, like, very clear paradigm. Also, this stuff has never been huge, right? Like, I mean, maybe in the seventies, mainframes and, and, and for you know that, but since the personal computer, microcomputers, and things like Linux made you know commodity, powerful servers really become a thing nobody ever really understood or got good at, I mean, it's not like you and I have been uh, security people for a long time and we have very little experience, you know, implementing mandatory access control. Vectors. It's just like, but we, we, every day or every so often we, we absolutely think of application security controls of, okay, well, this user can access mm-hmm. these objects. And, and, you know, I, I still occasionally deal with, with the Unix stuff. Um, so, so that's why it's not as important. Now, let me, so, okay, not necessarily as important, but like inherently secure. I think that the, so the argument that one argument is, is that they're making is that they're secure because nobody knows how to break into them. You and I agree that that's bunk. Correct. Um, that's security through security. That's not bad. The next object is that mainframes have the potential to be more secure because they have more granular access controls. That's Hopefully I've convinced you mm-hmm. that I think that that's not so relevant anymore. Maybe in particular applications, it could be relevant, but you could also have available if you were trying to do that on a different platform, uh, you have some tools available to do that. The last argument is like, well, is the, I mean, the last argument anybody could possibly make is, is the operating system actually more secure? 
And I have no evidence to think that that is true and a lot of evidence to think that it's maybe not true. Um, some of it's anecdotal evidence. So, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying there? Like, is the operating system written in a way that it's mm -hmm. got less vulnerabilities that would lead to compromise? Yeah, I get what you're, you're driving at, right? And that kind of sounds like the more maybe familiar argument for folks that nowadays, right? Macs are more secure it's, than PCs. Oh, yes, a version of that, right? Um, so let me give a shout out here is... I don't know a ton about this, like in terms of like the deep technical operating system details and security controls, but there's guys out there and two of them, one is a friend of a friend, um, big Indian smalls, whose, whose name is Chad, uh, Rickens, Rickens, right. I, I, I may not be pronouncing that, that correct, but he goes by big Indian smalls on Twitter. He's got a ton of data. I mean, this guy has done so much and also Phil young. I think they've partnered together on specific things. When I was, looking into this a little bit further just to make sure that I had some solid footing, these guys really break down, you know, like we, for, for anybody who's got a background in uh, system level penetration testing, um, you know, gaining a foothold, th these guys lay out what are the realistic attack chains and really they dispel the myth that they're not there. Right. They, they may not have been well known before, you know, it saw this adversarial research and, and the work that these guys have done. And there's other people out there, too. Um, I, I mean, this as this has been a thing in the last I started seeing talks at conferences about this pop up when that some of that hardware became available on eBay and became affordable. Um, but really great stuff like, you know, just like in, a, in a, on the Mac OS world, you know, um, you'll see some type of like. Um, uh, access control mechanism like to prevent um, buffer overflows, right? So, you know, okay, it's unpredictable now what the address space that we need to jump to is to get the pointer to get the shellcode in. And then you start seeing, you know, those adaptive techniques, well, we're going to use the return pointer and all that stuff. And I'm not, you know, th that's not my area of expertise, but the same level of internals knowledge and things like that is coming out there and a lot of great work for these guys to produce it. Now, if I were going to make an argument that mainframe security sucks compared to modern operating systems, I think my two strongest arg arguments I'm going to throw at you is like what's been accomplished in some modern operating systems. And I'm not saying like, I'm not going to talk about windows and Linux. I think that that windows and Linux both do a fairly decent job of, of security. I'm not going to complain about, I'm not going to say, Hey, I'm a Linux guy or I'm a windows guy. I'm both. I've, I've done work on both. I think that the ecosystems that we put those operating systems into are sometimes flawed in which we have these super powerful domain users, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not like inherently, you know, a lot of times even, you know, the Linux infrastructure will be connected to the active directory and things like that. And there's just so many paths to compromising the domain credentials, right? Oh, we get on this one guy's laptop, we wait until he logs in or the backup server comes and connects to, you know, I've got a foothold on this like tiny little server out here in this, um, you know, regional bank office and every weekend the domain controller comes by and and sends me a backup credential that has domain admin, right? Like they log into me with this, you know, and, and you can compromise it that way. Or then I've seen, you know, Nessus servers like authenticate 
to all the systems with a domain admin level user, and you could just sniff it through the SSH process. You debug the SSH process, that Nessus vulnerability scanner, which is trying to do a good security thing, authenticates to you in order to check what package levels you are. That account is overprivileged and gives you access to pretty much everything in the environment. There's all these, like, because of the management plane infrastructure, these all these ecosystems. That's the last argument that really, because mainframes are often interoperable are often inoperable or incompatible with the dom- that domain control ecosystem sometimes they're seen as more secure because they're just compartmentalized from it right yeah they have their own system of that that you have to use there's mm-hmm. compatibility problems now i also had a little uh, i was fielding this uh this topic in in a in a private slack channel and one of the guys on there was like hey when i was early in my career I wrote a mainframe authentication PAM module in Bash in shell scripting that called out to a system call for Perl. And he was like almost, he was positive. I think he even knew that later on he wrote an exploit for that same thing, right? So you you have people trying to forge these bridges back into that domain and ecosystem that are also kind of hacky and, and have their own attack surface. So, um, but the, if if I were going to say that okay, well, it's it, it mainframe security sucks compared to some other things. I've got two examples for you. The first one, in terms of like quality of the operating system, and I'm it, it's not like I'm a stakeholder in either of these things. I use a lot of different things, but if you're going to find an example of the of one of the most secure operating systems, I think you know the audience might look towards OpenBSD. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times here in just in terms of not only the features, which, because there are some like really specific anti-exploitation features, you know, every time you boot, your kernel gets relinked to change the, you know, to, to prevent some of the um, uh, randomization problems and memory layouts. They have several memory protection mechanisms for for preventing buffer overflows. They're very selective and aggressive about the crypto algorithms that they allow, you know, that they include in the operating system, the entropy generators in there, use of privilege separation. And, but more than anything, just the focus on bug eradication and high quality source code. And the, I think the data stands for itself. You can make arguments against OpenBSD for performance. You can make ar- arguments for OpenBSD for features. I was about to throw it out the window the other day um, because the iSCSI um, initiator didn't have some um, RFC thing that I was trying to do. So I couldn't connect one of my OpenBSD systems to a NAS. But you, it's hard to argue against OpenBSD's security track record, which is you know two or three remote root exploits in the last twenty years. I do not doubt you on that. Okay, the other thing that you have more hands-on experience with is your phone, right? Mm-hmm. You have an Apple iPhone. I think iOS, like as an operating system it's an incredible challenge from security to 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 secure it and because they're they're considering i mean one of the primary attack models here is jailbreaking right this mm-hmm. phone is in physical control of the adversary and the fact that the latest ios release i think it went from september to february without a publicly working jailbreak 
I think that that's a tremendous security achievement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given like the you know secondary industry that spun up around just trying uh, to. Yeah, I mean like the fact things. the fact that I mean what other I, I mean I, operating systems that you know general purpose operating systems like we mentioned OpenBSD, Linux, Windows, they don't even try to test the test that adversary. I mean, maybe you have encrypted partitions on your laptop or a little bit of that, but it's just unbelievable to me that, you know, as security, like when we want to go and test mobile apps, we've got to buy phones that have been shrink wrapped. You know, we, we go to the store that sells the least amount of iPhones. So, so we can buy that one that, you know, was put on the shelf, you know, a year ago, or, you know, the comp- our, our security consulting firms offer to buy our personal old phones so they can lock them in a vault and bring them out next year for testing. Like all that stuff to me just really speaks to, um, and, and you know, the incentive models in Pwn to Own and stuff like that. All of that, I mean, it's not to say that those things are holding up. I think, you know, also there's so many brilliant and, you know, it's, I think both sides of that are impressive, but those types of bugs are, are innovative. We see different vectors popping up. Um, sometimes you see like something, okay, well, we haven't been able to use this vector for 10 years, but we caught a new spin on it. I'm just really impressed by that as an example of operating systems, like the the inherently secure operating system. I think that those two examples represent a much stronger example because of the adversarial pressure in front of the work and because of the evidence than any mainframe OS I've ever heard of. Like those things are just not getting as much attention, as much publicity. And they're generally parked into these quiet spots in the network that don't see much adversarial pressure. But Every time I've been a part of a pen test where a mainframe was even in scope a little bit, like a port scanner tips it over. <laughs> like that's my, that's the last dimension of this is anecdotal research of like when you're doing a network pen test and it's always the same thing. You notify the mainframe guys that, Hey, we're going to include this in a network pen test. Do you have any guess what the response is or have you ever been a part of a project where this happened? Uh, that they sort of just deem the mainframe out of scope, right? Like, yeah, out of scope. And a lot of times the argument is like, this thing is so inherently secure, you don't have to test it, right? <laughs> and then you just, you come back to that and you're like, okay, but you're not going to get PCI certified, <laughs> like, unless we do this test. And 10 minutes into the thing, the first thing that happens is, you know, you end map the thing because you don't even know what the what the mainframe is, you know, so you run an end map. And that then it stops responding. And it's like, oh, is that some security feature that like saw a high high rate of unauthorized connections and shut it down? Nope. The kernel panicked because it's not used to seeing sixty thousand network connections per second and it just went went down. And I've seen that happen so many times. I've seen other things where just like, you know, the actual applications themselves just like immediately were not, you know, they they some version of the the um, you know, access control overflow we're using. So it, it just, to me is like a pretty constant, uh, there's, there's this like tension between information security, cybersecurity people and the main frame system managers, system owners and access, you know, the security manager is probably the person that's, that's really driving this like access provisioning type of thing there's a really tension and, and misunderstanding about what security means and what this thing's resilience. So the advice would be to like really 
harden and put into place hard compartmentalization methods like modern operating systems that are proxying, you know, you know, mm-hmm. protecting the sensitive network stacks and things like that of these systems and act, acting as secure gateways so that you can have just the extra buffer of protection there. Because, yeah, anecdotally, anytime they're included in any type of even non-targeted, non, non, you know, there's guys out there that are still, you know, that like beginning as falls, those guys, they're doing next level security research, but it's just obvious to me that these things from a resiliency perspective to unplanned use cases like port scanning and vulnerability, you know, just sending da- unexpected data to them, fuzzing, I'm sure you can knock them over, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, um, relatively unsophisticated fuzzing and stuff like that. It's, it's just not there. The unintended, the programming to handle unintended use cases at an application layer. I'm, I have not anecdotally seen evidence of that being more solid than, than other operating system. And I have anecdotal evidence to suggest that it's much less solid. Yeah. Okay. Are we getting to the, to the scorecard part of the show? Yeah. Yeah. How did I do? Okay. So I actually have, have, I provided you one rating mm-hmm. for each of the wits. So I, I phrased it one, one way, mainframe security sucks. And I also <laughs> sent you a separate score for phrasing it as mainframes are not inherently secure. Got it. So I would say, so what are we doing here? Do you want me to pick one? You, you rate it first. Well, I would say I'm saying a nine. Zero to a okay, nine. zero to ten. Zero to mainframe 10. security sucks. There, so I will we'll- say. Okay, for that one, I'm going to go with eight because I think, as you can probably tell, I, as I admitted, I don't really have a lot of experience here. But from your arguments, you're convincing me. I would say, yes, eight. I think is fair. Awesome. Okay, and that is the second rating that I provided you in the the list there. Yeah. So I also said it was an eight. So, okay. I feel pretty good about my day, especially compared to my track record with you is not been so good. So good. <laughs> yeah. And that's not intentional. Now, now mainframes are not inherently secure. What would you rate that? I would rate that again. I would say I would go at a nine because, because I it's think a that, slightly softer premise. Well, I, not that it was a softer premise, but you know, again, I think I, I have to shy away from it, doing any tens here, given that I don't, I, I do not consider myself an expert here. But based on your arguments alone, yeah, I think hiding behind obscurity uh, to say that something is by you default can see the reason yeah, no. for alarm. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, so. I, I I I agree with that too. I so that was my rating. I for mainstream security sucks. I would say that that's probably a true, and that I mostly am convinced of um, by like the anecdotal evidence of like, hey, I, there's very few systems these days that you run an MMAP on and they tip over. So why does your system get a free pass, and why do you keep telling me it's so secure? Like just the availability in the C- the old school CIA triad, I'm not convinced of. Like, but you know, maybe there 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 are ways to. I'm sure there are ways to protect mainframe systems as assets. You know, I get that there's some capabilities there that help in certain access control scenarios to provide granularity, and I it's a 
but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not one to give it a free pass because we largely, we don't know how to test those things as well. And I really, you know, I can't thank those, those people, uh, enough that have gone out there and made that more accessible. So now we're seeing packages in Metasploit and things like that, that are actually able to help you help people test those systems as well. So the awesome stuff there by the community. And in terms of like mainframes are not inherently true. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, 100%, nothing's in, not, nothing is inherently secure. It takes a lot of work. And I don't think the same level of work that's going into that is there as other things because there's this misperception that they're inherently secure, right? It's preventing, yeah. it's, it's kind of a self, uh, I don't know, self disproving philosophy. If you think something is, is inherently anything, and not working to maintain, preserve, or improve that, it's going to not be that thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you don't, you don't stay healthy. You know, it's like, I'm not inherently physically fit, right? Even people who are, have good genetics and are physically fit are not, they have to work to maintain that. Um, and the same is true about uh, certainly security in almost every situation, right? Um, okay. So, Yeah. A little bit more technical, and, and I do apologize if I got any of the technical details around there. Um, and some of my, even my modern operating system management stuff is is getting a little dated. So, um, but I, I I hope that uh, if you're in a situation where you do hear this this, uh, it, maybe you're at an enterprise as a, as a listener and, and you 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 face this type of thing. Um, hopefully there's some materials in here in this conversation that you can maybe bring into bullet points to say, you know, to differentiate access, differentiating access control from security, you know, differentiating, you know, operating system security features from access control security features, like those types of things, I think will help maybe get you to the next step there. Um, this week's throwback, uh, we talked to Rob. So let me give you a, a bit of background around my friend, Rob Bridal. Um, so I met Rob, uh, I mean, we were in elementary school together, uh, the same, we went to the same elementary school together. Um, really we, we started hanging out and, uh, and, and getting closer in high school, both playing chess together. Um, we were both on the high school chess team. He kind of taught me how to play chess a lot of, he was a much stronger, uh, player and also he grew up programming and I grew up as we said, so he kind of actually followed Dennis your your kind of paradigm, like he was a, a programming in basic as a kid and, and taking, um, he was, he was always taking these, uh, programming classes in, in class. So he grew up programming, um, and was the first web developer that I ever met, I think. So, and, and he was the first server co-location customer at the internet service where we talk about all that and, uh, and his journey with, uh, with, uh, programming and his, his web app, early web applications. Um, later on, he pivoted into the network architecture engineering side of things. So we kind of crossed paths where I actually late in my career started gravitating towards helping people with their development, life cycles, things like that. He was a programmer that's, that's now solving and working on some of these infrastructure and uh, tele- telecommunications. So he's a direct, director of solutions architecture at Comcast Business um, he's got a, a big, ba- a really strong background in network architecture, backbone engineering, Unix systems engineering, but he also never stopped, stopped solving problems with code. So, um, you know, that, that's another great thing that, that he's always brought to that is he, he when he gets backed into a problem, 
Um, a lot of times he fights his way out with, with code and, and development. And I think that's a really cool skill set. My favorite thing about Rob, and I remember I was like so proud because I was like one of maybe the early influences trying to get Rob into systems, a little bit more systems. He was the 2007 North America Red Hat Certified Engineer of the Year. So even though that's 13 years ago, I'm, I'm still going to mention it because I think it's a, a great achievement. And, um, you know, I, I feel uh, I take just a, a little bit of, uh, of pride from from getting him started on, on that path. So. Yeah, let's uh, throw it back to Rob. All right, Rob, thank you so much for making the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. So you and I have known each other as for a really long time because we went to the same elementary school, but we're in different grades and didn't have a ton of classes where we, we really became friends in high school through a mutual friend of ours, I think Ben Jacobs. Um, and then I started playing a little bit of chess and you also started getting into, um, you were always into computers on, on a lot of the, on the, I think the programming side of things, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you started doing more with internet connected and, and dynamic web application programming, that type of thing. And I was working at the internet service providers. So, you know, we, we kind of spent a lot of time, uh, my junior year, your, your kind of first half of your senior year or so, um, uh, working on on some some technology stuff together as well. Does that sound right, or did we interact more in junior high or something? I'm forgetting. Oh no, that's that, that's about it. I you know we knew who we, uh, who each other was, and we just didn't have a chance to interact much. Yeah, but we're we're pretty fast friends when when we did get that chance. I think what what uh, so part of the thing I've, I've been doing with people is uh, describing the computer that they had when I when I met them. And for you, the one that I had in mind was you actually were the only or at least first co-location sub- subscriber to the to KSNI, the second internet service provider that I that I actually worked for and was the the kind of technical director for in high school. You were our one and only co-location subscriber and you built a computer for that. And we're going to be talking a little bit about like what you use that server for, but you built, I think it was the first like Athlon K2 350 that I had ever, you know, maybe been around and we made you put it in a rack mount case. Those are the, the facts about that computer that I remember. And I think it was called reddwarf.ksni.net, or maybe you had your own domain name, but does that sound right? Yeah, and he was a uh, he was named Joshua. He was actually a uh, a dual processor system with uh, uh, a pretty decent amount of RAM. I, I got him up to about three hundred and eighty four megabytes of RAM. Oh, just and, packing uh, it in there. Yeah. What did, what yeah. was Red Dwarf? Was that not the name of it, or was or did you change names, or both, or is that that just a mismemory of mine is, that it was called Red Dwarf? Was that something else? Uh, I'm not sure about Red Dwarf. I, okay. He was he was pretty much always Joshua. You know, okay, it's like every gotcha. other nerd naming them off of uh, off the Whopper yep. from uh, Wha- War Games. <laughs> Whopper from War Games, cool. Now our our paths have this like weird intersection where, um, you know, you were a very good, and I, in some ways a product of the school system, but you were a, a really intense about programming growing up, whereas I was like more interested in maybe systems and kind of gravitated towards networking and and that technology. And that kind of, so that intersection um, kind of came together later on where you started then programming for web applications, needed to know a little bit more about, um, you know, Unix and Linux. 
Um, so we talked about that. And then also we had some projects either at the ISP or customers or something like that, um, where you would do some like Perl development, but you know, ev- maybe even more interesting than your first computer that we described, you're actually, you, I remember you were like, had mastered Turbo Pascal in like the mid nineties. Like that was your, your go-to programming language prior to getting into these kind of more, uh, you know, inter- like more web focused languages. Yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of a uh, interesting way that I got involved with it too. Um, you know, it took a while before uh, before I got internet, uh, given where I was at and everything. Um, you know, I, I used to always go with my uh, with my dad over to his uh, uh, his office, and he sold uh, you know office furniture and copiers back in the '90s when you know big copier was the the thing to have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember playing a, a golf game at his desk on his computer there, and uh, I, I hit a. a hit a bad ball or something. I remember, uh, I hit the keyboard and, uh, you know, one of those things you're not too proud of, uh, you know, when you look back on it, but, uh, it, it actually broke out into a, uh, um, a Microsoft basic, uh, command prompt or Microsoft basic, uh, uh prompt <laughs> there. And I just started typing things. And, uh, uh, you know, some of the, some of the obvious ones like color, they, they just kind of started working. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's actually where, where it started. Uh, from the programming side, and that's how uh, how I got interested in it to begin with. Um, you know, later on, uh, a year or so later, uh, uh, I've got a, a couple of uncles who run a, uh, an alarm system company in, in back home in Quincy. Oh, the Havermails, uh, yeah. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. And my uh, my uncle Steve actually uh, he brought me uh, or gave me some some Quick Base books or not Quick Base, uh, uh, Quick Basic. Right. Uh, Base. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and, you're uh, you're. Up. I remember your uncle Steve was like a, one of the first customers of that internet service provider, and also yeah was our alarm system manager and and uh, yeah was was a good friend to the to 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 me and the the other kids working there during the, the day. So yeah, and he was he was a uh, you know great he's a great man. So uh, you know it, he he really introduced me to that. Uh, you know part of it was my luck, part of it was by uh, you know uh, good family and friends and and. Uh, now that's what really got me going, and you know, once I could see what I could do with it, and uh, how much fun it was to actually create something, it was, you know, almost like uh, almost like art for me. You now other people could draw, and I I could make uh, menu systems that would try to teach you how to speak Spanish. <laughs> awesome. So now the next stage of this is is um, I when you were in high school dynamic web applications became a thing. And I'm, how did you get into that? Because you, I mean, you were programming in Perl, I think before we became friends, but I'm not really sure at what, you know, kind of where that, when that happened for you. I mean, when did you get on the internet? When did you kind of make that transition and start working with things like Perl and, and those associated kind of CGI web applications? So the, uh, the intro to Perl was a little bit, a little bit different. Um, There were, uh, there for a while, there were these text-based online uh, online games. The uh, I cannot remember the name of them. Uh, Earth Twenty Twenty Five was one of them. Uh, yeah, and uh, they, you know, kind of war games. They were time-based. Uh, you get a certain amount of, uh, of moves uh, based off how much time has passed and all that good stuff. And there's a uh, an online community that kind of uh, kind of backed it. And that uh, that online community uh, basically they got together and you know different uh, alliances or you know guild kind of things. And, uh, yeah, that, there was a yeah. 
I was just going to say, that's what I remember is, and in fact, I had to, I Googled and found out the name of that game. Earth 25 was, was it, I guess they considered an MMORPG or something like that, but it's turn-based web, web game, strategy game, and you ran companion, companion forum for the site, like helping people organize, or what, what was the site? Because it, it did have quite a bit of traffic, and then I'll kind of lead into my, I'm going to depose you about one of your, your hijinks in a second here, <laughs> more than interview you. But what, what, was the, what was your relationship? You didn't host the actual game, you hosted a companion site for the game. That was pretty popular, right? Yep. So uh, one of the things that, that they would do is they actually kind of got together and uh, banded up uh, the different players. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, there were uh, there were several um, defunct kind of uh, clans or alliances out there, and uh, one of those uh, one of those defunct ones actually uh, sent me over the code that they used for their their private website, and it was uh, it was it was you know pretty basic, but uh, uh, it was the first time that I'd ever ever really played with Pearl before, and mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of a a somewhat functioning uh, you know private website, sort sort of like a uh, uh, the old uh, Yahoo Groups websites, um, right? You know, yeah. you could kind of create your own uh, uh, little things inside of it. So uh, I actually took that and kind of expanded on it. Uh, learned how to how to program Perl from the source code there, and then from uh, you know Google. Uh, right. And from that point on, uh, uh, you know, it, it just kept expanding and expanding. And uh, it, at one point, it, it became multi-threaded, so or multi. Uh, uh, multi-tenant, I guess you would say, and mm-hmm. instead of supporting one like it originally had, it had been converted into, uh, you know, by the time I was done, it was full-blown uh, uh, PHP with uh, uh, MySQL on the back end. It's got, a, you know, multi-tenancy, and uh, um, really there were, uh, you know, dozens and dozens. I think I, I might have uh, hit over 100 different clans on the, on the, uh, the one for... Uh, Utopia Online, which was one of the games that, that followed Earth 2025 from the, right. from the same programmer. Gotcha. And I, I don't know, the, Pearl is almost not used enough that I guess we can assume, but Pearl was a programming language, practical extraction and reporting language. It, it started off as a replacement for like set and awk to do thing, you know, regular expressions better, but it really became the go-to, first go-to language for dynamic web applications using the common gateway interface. So it, which was mostly manipulated through form fields and, and kind of tracking metadata in, in that kind of very primitive way. Right. Yeah. And it, it has uh, uh, one of the unfortunate, so you can write single, uh, single applications on, uh, or, you know, small applications on a single line with Perl because of the, uh, uh, the way that it's written. And, uh, you know, it was kind of unique for its time with its ability to uh, uh, kind of string object calls together and, and, uh, um, do a lot more with a lot less. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, one of the downfalls to it was actually that uh, uh, it was it's it's an interpreted language, and there's not really much room to precompile. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it actually uh, that combined with the uh, uh, the way that CGI works within Apache uh, really really uh, kind of backed me against the wall on on a lot of different uh, from like uh, resourcing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of scalability Which- issue. Yeah, later on there was a mod Perl extension for Apache that would keep resident Perl interpreters and and I mean yeah so it's just as a as a notion of it was there was difficult to scale capacity there which is kind of why maybe you became your instead of just running your application on one of our servers you became a co-location customer. 
Yeah, and at that same time, that's where I, uh, that's when I discovered RAM disks, and uh, yep. discovered that one of the uh, one of the slowest things about interpreting the uh, the language was uh, reading it from the disk. So uh, yeah, I we found a way to pre-compile where it actually kind of wrapped up the Perl executable with the, uh, with uh -huh. the source code together, loaded it onto a RAM disk, and then uh, actually ran the CGI from a RAM disk, and it worked extremely well. Yeah, I, I uh, like. I don't want to take credit, but I, I remember talking about that. I'm not sure if I gave you any inspiration towards that idea or not, but uh, I'm not going to take credit for it here. <laughs> you, you definitely gave me a lot of inspiration over the years here, Kevin. <laughs> um, so you have this now. Now we're going to get into some hijink stuff because you, like me, um, and maybe to a uh, way more degree, were not interested in school that much like <laughs> you 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 were in some ways visionary but the basic expectations of being a high school student were way secondary to the other things you wanted to do is that fair to say <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good way to summarize it okay so you know and one of the good parts about our friendship and one of the the best things you ever did for me is you gave me your parking spot uh, in my junior year so that I could park. And, and do you want to talk about why that parking spot was available or should we just move on? <laughs> hey, you know, uh, now we can just move on. <laughs> anyway, so you're not so interested in school. Um, and this becomes kind of a, of an accession and passion of yours. And I think you also have an entre at the time and, and maybe still today, an entrepreneurial spirit, to go out and kind of do something with this knowledge. And I guess that starts with like looking at how to monetize your application and, you know, and, and there was some, some early web advertisers in the space, right. That you could go out to and kind of, they would just, you know, give a key to anybody in terms of, of, uh, I don't know if it's API or whatever, but they would basically support banner advertisement and, and some, you know, if somebody clicked drive some revenues from that. Yep, that was uh, um, that was what funded my uh, junior, senior, and uh, a little bit beyond that years. Um, basically, they uh, uh, they loaded it up through, uh, for the most part, images, or uh, I believe it made its way into iframes there near the end. And mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the big thing to it was uh, at the beginning, those were uh, CPC models, which were uh, basically you get you get paid based off the number of impressions uh, that you make. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And then after that, they, the online click, advertisers click to, click to yep. pay, right? Like, so the click throughs, you, you weren't getting money just for displaying somebody's images. You were getting money when somebody was actually inspired to click on that, right? Yeah, and that's a difficult transition for a uh, for someone who runs a um, an exclusive or a, you know an, an invite only uh, website, even though you know. Even though I can get two million hits on the thing, uh, if if it's invite only, it's uh, it's more difficult to get the uh, the advertising revenue than than you might imagine. Okay, so what do you do to solve that difficulty? Well, the the correct answer is you get better content. And, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. What did you do <laughs> to, uh, to to increase your monetization of this mob? So there were uh, there were ways. You know, again, a lot of this was uh, was images. And uh, the images were, uh, you know, they they were had a uh, uh, an anchor tag associated with them in HTML, so you could click through. And you know, there there were ways to um, basically click through for the user without 
clicking the user through. Is that uh, through a Java, a, like a JavaScript blob or something like that? Or how would you trigger a browser to click to to inspire a user to to click through through the web interface? <laughs> so, in in uh, at the beginning there, it was uh, a little more um, a little more archaic than that. Uh, basically, based off a, a certain set of criteria, you know, if the user has been uh, uh, been logged in before, uh, if they're logged in now. Um, when the last time they clicked on that link was, what IP address they had the last time, et cetera. Uh, uh-huh. The uh, uh, Perl-driven uh, web application would actually make a determination first if it was going to trying to click through for you. And it would also throw some, some randomization in there. That way it wasn't always the, the first or second uh, impression that somebody clicked on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the system would actually uh, uh, basically load it up into, a, uh, into an image. And uh, there would be uh, um, an image that would show the the banner ad, and then an image that was hidden at the bottom of the page. It was a, a, a one by one, uh, one pixel by one pixel image, with the source being a uh, uh, the actual click through, the the target of the URL. Which gotcha. Uh, so the know, browser would render would try to render render an image source equals reference, but then the target of that reference was the banner ad click through. So it would look like the person did follow that dynamic link and register as a click through for the advertiser. Yep, but it worked pretty well for a little while. I remember when you were testing this, uh, not that I was uh, involved in any way, but I do remember when you were testing it, you had maybe had the randomization factor in terms of how what percentage of people were going to get this go through set way too high. And you were worried that it would like, I think you even contacted DoubleClick and, be like, and said like, oh, we had a click for cancer thing or whatever. So we got a ton of traffic and they gave you like some, they reduced percentage of those hits or something like that. Yeah. Was that do you remember that at all? Oh yeah, I, I had a month in there where the uh, the click through rate was uh, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, <laughs> it would have been something to be proud of. So, so the revenue from this, I, I don't even know, think I ever knew, but I knew I do know that you were willing to pay. I think we were charging you like five hundred bucks a month for the hosting. What what uh, are you comfortable talking about the the revenue of this this model at all, or is it something that you you don't want to discuss? Um, you know, it it, it did pretty well. Uh, uh, for for what it was, um, fair, it had fair to be, enough. <laughs> yeah, and it, it had to be adapted a few times. Uh, now there were times when uh, the target would actually uh, load before the image would, and uh, uh-huh. you know I, I had a, a few different tweaks that went in there. And as those tweaks went in, it, the uh, uh, the revenue actually started to drop a little bit. Uh, right. So you know it, it's the ups and downs, and you know it's uh, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff you can uh, you can fund with. Uh, um, some pretty good revenue uh, for a high school kid that's um, living your best life. <laughs> it, it was a blast. Um, so, what? Any other stories from that kind of time period, or or anything that you remember either about? I, you used to hang out at the ISP, and you know we would we would play chess. I think you were actually one of the four people that were there when we got hacked. Uh, <laughs> I think we were playing. <laughs> Uh, bug house chess and in the background you know somebody noticed that a monitor flickered or whatever <laughs> i start investigating that and i think we'll we'll get into that that whole story in a longer time but you spent a good deal of time at the isp and you know we're doing other stuff outside any any other good stories you want to share from from kind of that time period you know i uh i have one that i think is uh, is pretty funny that's kind of related to that and then in the uh, uh the co-location um mm-hmm. if you remember right and i, I 
I think it was uh, the male host was uh, was Kyle or not Kyle uh, Cartman, if I remember right. The ma- male then, host uh, was Stan, but then Cartman did have some virtual mail going on as well. Gotcha. Uh, which one had the keyboard on it that uh, was always in that same place where the keyboard for my uh, co-location host was? I I think that keyboard <laughs> probably moved around a little bit if it was on the racks, but uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if everybody knows this one, but uh, um, I might have rebooted uh, that mail server 15, <laughs> 20 times. On accident, thinking it was your your web server? Like yep. just hitting the grab, okay. grab the wrong keyboard to go and uh, uh, go and do some coding, and uh, turns out I was on the wrong host to begin with, and uh, you know reboot a, a news server or something like that. Yep, yep, that's totally <laughs> totally fair, and probably not your fault. <laughs> so uh, ultimately, so yeah, but that is good, and yeah, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, so- I don't. I don't remember that ever happening. So you you were pretty <laughs> you were pretty good about uh, about keeping it on the download. Yeah, I, I I probably wouldn't have put the uh, uh, the keyboard right back where it was and grabbed a different one. That would have never <laughs> happened. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean there was a lot going on there. Uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the other fun stuff that that's also happened, or maybe not so fun stuff. Uh, um, there for a while, uh, I had a dial-up account with QU uh, uh-huh. in order to uh, you know just kind of dial up to the internet, and they had their their. Uh, uh, web server where you could uh it was kind of the beginnings of uh of things for me as well uh but you could actually dial up you could uh uh set up your web server throw a little web page on there and uh yep it was also the uh the radius server so shimino uh, dot shimino dot edu and i i'm good friends with the person that administrated that at the time i'm gonna maybe see if he wants to hop on the podcast later so <laughs> so there was a there there might have been an incident in there where you know I really wanted to know what my IP address was every time that I dialed up to the internet. So mm-hmm. uh, I basically had a cron job that that uh, ran uh, last and piped it over to a, a quick Perl script that would uh, pull up the last entry of uh, of my username and then uh, send that over to a uh, to a file, just a, a straight text file that uh, sat up on the uh, you know the the HTML documents uh, folder for uh, or the HTML root folder for my yep. username. Uh-huh. Which does really well, except uh, um, if nobody ever uh, cleans up anything, and uh, that that last command starts taking you know a minute, maybe two minutes, maybe it's taken uh, eight minutes now or twenty minutes. Uh, <laughs> your cron jobs start to kind of compile on top of each other and start to snowball. And uh, I might have crashed QU's uh, mail server, <laughs> web server. Oh, this is uh, so. This everything. is this is good. Let's let's break this down a, a little bit more. So you set up a personal cron tab, probably on like the one minute mark or something like that, right? Because I think that that's the max. Actually, you can you can run cron jobs on the second field, right? Man, man five cron tab. It'll tell you. But so now on the Unix side of things. If the WTMP file was not being rotated, then last is going to report basically everything that's in that log file. So the, you know, and this is a pretty busy local dial-up server. So theoretically, like, let's say you run it every minute and theoretically that file is a couple meg long and, you know, that, so that job even running locally might then take longer than one minute to complete. So you're going to start stacking up and the cron tab is going to start a new version of that before the old one even finishes. So basically you're just kind of forking these W temp files all on the same resource, you know, and, and it is just kind of building over term over time. 
Yep, exactly. <laughs> so that would that probably crashed the server because it ran out of memory, right? Because each one of those processes is going to hold an open file stream for the memory while it's going through that pipe, right? Because you're you're actually also you could have just ran last dash one, or I, I guess try to try to find you know a, a, a tune that to, so that it wasn't running the whole you temper file, but you were probably just like piping the tail and cutting off the last 10 <laughs> or something like that. So, I, I am pretty uh, sure that when I wrote that one, I was just happy that I could figure out how the, how the uh, uh, cron works to begin with. That is and, so uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. This is like, you know, when you, when you manage a shell server in the nineties and have users on it, these, those are just the kind of things that happen, right? Like I, I, Vivid, vividly remember we had on the um, another another customer, and I think you might you might remember this a little bit as well. But the guy ran a neurogames.com, Kurt something. You remember that at all? The guy who had the like Pearl game fighter thing. Did you ever play that or, or no? Look at that at all? That actually, I, I vaguely remember that. That was a long time ago. So, and, and he was similar to you, like self-taught Perl programmer and stuff like that. And that thing was always trashing our, uh, virtual, like our, our domain web server, our, our commercial web server. So I, at some point kind of wrote a similar thing to you where every minute I looked at how many, you know, how many processes he owned and started like randomly killing all the ones like that exceeded a certain limit. And that just, it didn't just like, tame his application it totally broke his application because all these threads would like die and not complete the like virtual fights between people and all this stuff he lived in springfield he drove to quincy one day unannounced to and like i was still in like when he got there at like 1 p.m i was still in class and like i started getting pages from people that were at the isp that this guy has shown up and he was like himself an actual like MMA fighter. <laughs> so everybody was very, everybody was very intimidated and scared by the situation. Um, and, and uh, it was a little tense, but, but um, you know, we, we talked about what was going on on both sides of the equation um, and managed to agree to some type of, of reasonable uh, resolution to, to the, uh, the competing <laughs> system jobs there, his, his, uh, his gaming jobs and, and my, uh, my random, uh, random killing processes. So, um, what, what, what else, anything to cover? You were also, I mean, we, uh, we did some just like non-computer hijinks too. I remember you and I once blew up a chair, <laughs> like at the ISP, we, we grabbed a chair and strapped a bunch of fireworks to it. Cause we were kind of hazing one of the guys that worked there who had bought this like cheap chair from the dollar store next door. And, and we took it out to, uh, to, to the woods or whatever and, and uh, strapped about a hundred bucks worth of fireworks to it and destroyed the thing, then parked it right back in his seat. So when he came in, it's, it's like a completely blown up chair. Was that, was that Nick? No. Yeah. Nick, Nick Huff was his name. Yep. Yep. That's right. I'm sure he's a good guy, but, but it was, that was the kind of thing that, and, and he was like a young adult, whereas we were just like kids. So we, we, we took out, we took as, as much, uh, as much, uh, liberty as we could with our, our status in life. So, yeah, that was, uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, so there was a, uh, there, there was a pretty decent amount of, uh, you know, drinking for me. <laughs> no, <laughs> what, what do you do when you're uh, when you're a teenager with uh, um, with a self-sustaining business that uh, kind of clicks on itself? Um, you drink a lot. 
<laughs> with yeah. when you have when you have brothers that are twenty, twenty one, twenty five. Yeah, and uh, you know there, there's a there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, at the same time uh, during that same period is uh, uh, when um, if you remember at Quincy Senior High School we used to have a uh, a Novell network that was running uh-huh. uh, running IPX. Yep. Um, during that time period is actually uh, um, when I created an application that would do uh, basically chat and you could play chess over the top of the IPX uh, network using oh, cool. uh, Turbo Pascal um, that you loaded up from uh, uh, from Novell and then mm-hmm. it actually had a had a kill key to it so you could hit uh, I think it was F9 and it would uh, actually kill the app and drop you back into the uh, uh, into the uh, the IDE for for uh, Turbo Pascal. So, you know, that's, that's that's pretty cool. Some pretty fun stuff there. Um, I did that one sober. Uh, those, uh, <laughs> the programming and the drinking merged a little bit later on in the life and came up with some fun ones, but, uh, uh, yeah, no. And before I, I, I we were closing in on this segment, but I, I think it's interesting to point out this like intersection and kind of crossover that we had of like, I, I think at the time and, and, you know, and as young adults, I think you inspired me a little bit on the future of software development. And, and at this pivotal time of we're transitioning from, you know, everybody ran the same software and all of our security problems that, I mean, most security co- problems kind of start with software, but we were all running the same stuff. And and I talked about this with another, another guest at one point, but, you know, everybody was running SendMail. So when SendMail had a security flaw, you all fix the same thing. But in this age, you're writing web applications and we're seeing, you know, vulnerabilities in web applications and we're seeing this business logic flaws and, you know, double click and, and all this types of thing. So that really opened up that that security interest to me in the application space. And over, not immediately, but over time, I kind of gravitated towards that. So now, you know, I work on software security full-time and you actually pivoted the other way where you got more interested in telecommunications and infrastructure, which was something that, you know, I think at the time, like we, we've kind of kind of switched sides a little bit. Um, and, and that's always been super interesting to me of, of kind of how I, how I'm, I wish I, you know, had gone your route earlier and learned all this programming stuff. And then you're, you're then, you know, now um, getting way deeper into, uh, you know, backbone engineering, telecommunications and, um, you were also, I should note, the 2006 Red Hat Certified Engineer of the Year. Is that true? 2006? 2007. 2007? So yep. uh, huge accomplishment there um, and, uh, and very interesting. But any, any is, is, do you think I captured that well for, for, for you? I mean, is, is, that, is that a true statement that we kind of pa- crossed over these two you know, intersecting lines or asymptotes of our, our, of our career? Oh yeah, and especially there at the beginning, uh, um, you know, that, that kind of made it full circle there in there in '07 as well, uh, as, as you mentioned. So, you know, uh, being at uh, at KSNI and, and you know hanging out there and you know really uh, really kind of having a I, I guess you say like a, a playground for nerds, you know, where we kind of kind of dive in and do whatever we we kind of wanted. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the areas where I really got interested in uh, in Linux and and found what I could do with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was always, uh, it seemed like there was always a, a red hat kernel build going on somewhere. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that actually is the, uh, the, the deepest that I've gotten into, you know, that was the deepest that I gotten at that point in, into, uh, into Linux. And, uh, 
um, you know, since then it's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of been a, uh, a transition to, you know, operating system as a tool and, and all the stuff that goes around with it, you know, right tool for the job. Uh, in, uh, in 06, 07 era is actually when, uh, uh, I, as a, as a Microsoft certified guy at that time, uh, and then Cisco certified guy went into, went, went into Red Hat training and, uh, walked out with, uh, I missed the, I missed the single question. I think I got like a, like a 97.5 between the two combined and, mm-hmm. uh, walked out with the RHCE and, uh, you know, thought it was a, it was a, it was a fun, a fun test and everything. And, uh, uh, ended up getting that RHC award and, you know, I attribute that a, a lot of that, you know, a lot of the interest in that and the, uh, the ease of, uh, uh, really understanding that and being able to, uh, uh, to use that tool for the right job into, you know, kind of those beginnings there at KS and I. So that stuff that, that, uh, that we worked on together that, you know, the, uh, the advice and the, you know, the direction that you gave me, even though, you know, I was like a year older, uh, you know, helping me out with all that stuff, uh, that, that actually paid off, you know, leaps and bounds for me. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it was a, it's a symbiosis, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I think it, it went mutually both ways and, um, you know, really glad to see your continued success and, and, you know, slight, I, on paper, if you were going to look at the jobs and look at the people that we were 20, 22 years ago, you would think that I would be the, 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 tel- the director in some, some, uh, major telecom and, and you would be working on software somewhere. And it's, it's just a, a fun pivot, I think, for, but, uh, and, and this was great to catch up. So, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I think we could probably, uh, get, get another one in. I think, I don't think our stories have done. We haven't even talked about, uh, chess <laughs> yet. So, uh, but, uh, Rob, this was great. Thanks so much. Definitely. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Yep. Dennis. Kev. What'd you, what'd you think about the throwback this week with Rob? I really like this. Uh, there was something that Rob said early on that uh, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I've never really thought about this way. But when he said that to him, writing a program was like art. Right. And it's like this, this thing that he created. And that really spoke to me because I hadn't really thought of it that way before. Right. Like it's like, I am not necessarily the most hands-on person in terms of creating stuff or or building things. Um, But I also love to build programs as a kid. And I guess like, yeah, that, that is, I can see that, that. And I thought that was really cool Um, because programming can seem like such a cold, you know, a social thing or, you know, maybe like, uh, yeah, not as creative as, as an, another art form. But I, I think that Rob really, uh, puts it in a nice light that way. Cause I do. Feel, yeah. I did feel that it's, way. it's, it's pretty poetic and it's also just like, I I'm the least, I mean, we had last, uh, yeah, la- two weeks ago, I guess when, when this will be released, you know, Nick, who was an artist and who came into technology, um, you know, in, in some ways just through like dual aspirations. But I know myself, I am the least, I would say, like classically artistic person. Like I am terrible playing music. I have bad hair right now. I can't draw a picture. You draw some decent pictures, but I am like truly have no traditional artistic but my creative creativity outlet is a lot of times in problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a deeply connected thread to like programming is problem solving. You have all these different ways to tackle the same things. Um, 
And yeah, I, I just think that that's, that's a really cool for, for other people that aren't artistic, let's like artistic versus creative, like creative problem solving is a really powerful thing. And it's a, it's a similar outlet um, that maybe you get from if you're capable of expressing yourself in art. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, I think, what was the, the game Earth 2025? Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yep. Earth 2025. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if there was going to be uh, an overlay. I was waiting for them to be some sort of shenanigans involved uh, <laughs> with maybe being the host of this multi-tenancy and, and just how seriously people take these games. Um, and my mind was going there because it reminded me so much of this other story that a coworker was telling me about, about the, a massive online game called Eve. And uh, I, I knew this person and was learning about this game and the online community mm-hmm. Eve right at the time that Heartbleed uh, came out and how the Eve communities were like using, <laughs> exploiting the Heartbleed vulnerability on their own little custom, you know, uh, guild or whatever servers to attack and like get insider information about what they were going to do. So I thought that that was oh, funny. Yeah. Um, and then I wish I could hear more about the click to base scheme. That was amazing. And then my final <laughs> note was I would easily pay $1,000 to have been a fly on the wall when that MMA fighter showed up at your ISP <laughs> was demanding to fight people that were killing well, his connections. Okay. That's just, I want to so hear more scary. about that story. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely have to dive into that one at some point. I, I need to do a, a throwback. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share a little bit about some of those, those scary times in there, but uh, yeah, I know it's so, so cool to, to see, um, you know, Rob kind of, uh, uh, keep expanding like he he never settles down he he's always kind of uh growing and and not not afraid to uh to tackle uh new things in his career and it's it's just been a real real joy to be a kind of a, a fly on the wall for for that as well so thanks so much robin i do hope we we can get rob back soon to talk about you know his his uh we we really only got to the point where where he was graduated in high school and and kind of uh spending a year on some of this stuff so it's that's a lot of fun for me Uh, All right. Well, thanks so much, everyone. And we'll, uh, Dennis, thank you. Okay. Yeah. No worries. I'm going to stop putting you on the spot to see if you have any final thoughts. I know that, (laughs) I know that's, that often is the ending is like, uh, Hey, Dennis, did you have anything you want to say? And then you're like, I wasn't prepared for that. So I'm not going to do it. Okay. You you don't even get the chance. I don't even want it. No, unless you want it. (laughs) <laughs> all right well i'll tell you yes i am going to take nope, the opportunity no nope, no nope, nope. now yes, you don't get it yes, yes okay okay what do you want to say this week uh, well you you did a better job covering or like in the introduction to the rob thing but i was like what's the chess connection here because you brought in the interview with him you said something about chess and then it just went away and i was like what is oh, the chess yeah. connection between these guys so rob uh, yep my rob is uh, oh. i i, I want to hear more about this because as a struggling chess player in the low 1300s I, I need to i need to get some background some tips from you guys gotta get, get my yeah rob, i mean i i don't know if rob is still active but he was uh you know the strongest player in in our high school um and you know so his junior year is when i started playing chess and i was terrible i had never really taken the game the game seriously so um not only, yeah, we so we really connected over chess, and then there's also uh, a team chess game called Bug House that that he and I uh, played quite a bit of together. So yeah, we we spent a lot of time over uh, over chess boards together, and he was a great mentor to me in that. So excellent. 
All, All right. right. Well, well, for another time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Yeah. Have a good week, Dennis. Bye.